a good move. Why'd you dance him? Dancing is forbidden. Yoo-hoo, running crew, welcome to Dancing is Forbidden, an Aqua Teen Hunger Force exploration. I am Ronnie, and on this podcast, I am usually watching through and talking about every Aqua Teen episode, one episode at a time, and you know that that typically involves deep diving into the show's backgrounds and the show's props. And by props, I mean anything that you see the character holding, from a chainsaw to a beer bottle, you get the idea. And today's guest is Bob Pettit, the man behind the backgrounds, the man behind the props. Bob was Aqua Teen's art director for 15 years. Bob was in on the ground floor. He he came on board in the first episode, Rabot, and to my knowledge, is credited on every single episode of the show's original run, including colon movie film for theaters. Bob also worked on the iconic intro to the show that we all love so much. And outside of Aqua Teen, he did some work on Space Ghost Coast to Coast, Squidbillies, Sea Lab 2021, and he did a lot of stuff on Your Pretty Face is Going to Hell, of course, Dave's other show, which is great in its own right. And then Bob also helped out a bit on the Archer pilot when that show was getting started. I'm going to tell you right now, this is one of my favorite episodes of the podcast yet. And let me explain why. Of course, we've talked about Bob a lot on this podcast, and I've heard Bob referenced a lot in the commentaries, but I didn't really know a lot about him. And of course, I tried to find him at many points online, but I could never find him on Twitter, never find him on Instagram. He didn't have a website. There was just really no way to get an idea of who he really was which kind of bugged me because this is somebody who was very important to the show and I wanted to know more about him. So fast forward to about a month ago and out of the blue, out of the ether, I get a notification on my phone that Bob was now following the podcast on Twitter. And you probably are familiar with this part because I mentioned it in a previous episode, but Bob, yeah, he's now on Twitter. And if you go over to his page, he is posting the Aqua Teen concept art stuff that people have never seen unless they were actually a part of the crew. And from there, I could get more of an idea of who he was because you could see he was very friendly, very happy to talk about the show with fans. And you could find Bob on Twitter at Pettit underscore art. Link to that in the show notes. But back to why this conversation you're going to hear is is one of my favorite things that has been accomplished on this podcast. And that really boils down to sharing Bob's story. Because of course, when I went to interview, you know, Jay, Dave, Matt, all the guys, I was more or less familiar with them and kind of what they were about. But that wasn't the case with Bob, and I really didn't know what to expect going into it. I was familiar with, you know, his work. I was familiar uh, with his voice because I had heard him on the Super Trivia commentary as well as in 2015, he was on the Atlanta Film Chat podcast uh, with Bradley Zimmerman who also worked on Aqua Teen, of course. So I I was familiar with Bob's voice a little bit, but beyond that, I didn't know what he looked like. I didn't know his history. I didn't know just what kind of person he was. And it's it's so cool to me to be able to shine a spotlight on Bob because he's, he's a very underrepresented and just an unsung hero of Aqua Teen Hunger Force. And Dave Willis even described him in an email to me as Bob bled Aqua Teen for many years. And I'm, I'm just, again, so, so stoked to, to help others learn more about him because he deserves it. Because, of course, Matt and Dave are geniuses, but a part of their genius, and, and we've discussed this on the podcast, 
is hiring good people and letting them do their thing. And Bob is one of those good people, and a lot of the visual jokes we see came directly from Bob. He put so much of himself into the show, the show that we all love. And it's criminal that until this point, we didn't really know his story. Bob, you almost went to jail. That's how criminal this was. But all right, thank you so much, Bob, for being so generous with your time and, and so willing to chat. Again, if you want to talk to Bob, find him on Twitter at Pettit underscore art. And thank you to Dave Willis for facilitating this to happen, for nudging me to finally do this. I kick off this, this conversation with Bob, uh, kind of explaining to him how things kind of came together. And a big part of that was Dave, because sometimes, your boy, I'm a, I'm a little slow on things. And, and Dave definitely helped to get the ball rolling on this. And again, this is one of my favorite episodes of the podcast. Enjoy. So it's kind of funny because... I reached out to Dave about something, asking him to clarify kind of a text joke on the show. And he responded saying, actually, I don't know anything about that. You should ask Bob Pettit, our background artist and, and prop artist. He might know. Have you had him on your podcast yet? And I'm like, oh, no, not yet. But I'll reach out to him because as luck would have it, you just started following me on Twitter like the week before. Oh, yeah. So I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah, I'll reach out. Thanks, Dave. And some time goes by and I didn't get around to it for no particular reason, uh, just that I was slow to do so. And then I get a fresh email from Dave uh, titled Bob Pettit saying, hey, I think Bob would be a great guest on your podcast. <laughs> I'm like, all right, all right, I'll reach out. I'll reach out. So um, you're here by popular demand. Oh, uh, yeah. Dave's good like that. <laughs> um, I guess my first question really is based on the little story I told you. What kind of prompted you to get on Twitter and more so start posting the Aqua Teen artwork there? Well, I, I tell you, I, I, I had most of this stuff in storage, thousands of sketches um, from the first movie. Uh, this and uh, Your Pretty Face is Going to Hell sketches also. And I was going through my storage unit. And I found these two giant, uh, you know, plastic file, you know, things. I don't know what you call them. And then and they're just sitting there. And I thought maybe I should give some away. So I thought uh, I thought it'd be fun to show them all on Twitter. Nobody ever saw the sketches. You know, we've never done a background kind of thing. And uh, they're all just sitting there. And uh, I thought I'd get on Twitter and get some followers and start giving some of this some of this artwork away and uh, and just have a little fun with it, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, last year they put out a complete box set of all the Aqua Teen episodes for the first time. And the thing that I was excited about was the prospect of new special features, particularly like your concept art, things that they used to include in the old DVDs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was excited for that for the new seasons that had never been on DVD before. And there were none. They included no new special features. So uh, it's so exciting to see you kind of giving <laughs> those away on Twitter because that's what I was most excited about, at least. And I know a lot of other people are very excited to see your kind of... Uh, works in progress of what we got to see in the episodes. Well, yeah, it's, it's very, uh, uh, a lot of people, um, are enjoying them. I say, I say a lot, a couple hundred people. I just started this about a month ago mm -hmm. and I don't know how long it takes to build a, a, a Twitter following, <laughs> but, uh, you know, much more about it than I do. Uh, but people really want to engage in the, in the little details. And, um, as, as I've heard Dave say before, some of the, some of, uh, people who enjoyed the show, some of the fans, 
they remember more about the episodes than we do. <laughs> they, their, their eyes are sharper and they're, they're looking, you know, very closely at it. It's, it's very rewarding, you know, to interact uh, with people. Sometimes I have to look something up. Like the other day we did uh, Dave's cat, uh, Gurn, mm -hmm. and you blasted out a band name that I had no idea where that oh. name came from. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I understand it, Dave named the cat Gurn after Gurn Blanston, which was a Steve Martin joke. So I, I guess they went, some, somebody made a oh, band. I, I, I didn't know I either. See. You mentioned it. So I went and listened to them and I'm like, oh, they're actually pretty good. <laughs> Well, I, you know, Dave likes bands like Pavement and uh, 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 the Pacific uh, uh, Northwest bands, so I thought it was logical that he named it after a band. But I'm not familiar. What was the Steve Martin thing? What was a what was it from? the The idea was that Steve Martin was his stage name, and he was gonna like go back to using his real name, which was supposedly Gern Blanston or something along those lines. <laughs> right. It was just from one of one of his comedy al comedy albums that Dave had growing up. Oh, right, right, right. I did watch The Jerk last uh, month again. Hey, you have a cat walking around back there. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess get used to that. They'll make some appearances here. <laughs> he heard us talking about Gurn. Yeah, yeah. My cat's like, hey, you talking about another cat? Let me get yeah, in here man. and get some screen time. I see that you were on Twitter in, in the past, it looked like. Your account isn't new. You just started using yeah. it again. Okay. Yeah. Because I definitely had tried to find you at some point. But you're very mysterious. I, I in the past I couldn't find your Twitter previously. Like I don't know that you have a website. Uh, I do not. Okay, so you're you're off off the grid for the most part. <laughs> I am kind of off the grid. But you know when we, Ronnie, when we started this thing, we were uh, just like the little engine that could. Mm -hmm. It was just a handful of people here in Atlanta, Georgia, and we were far far away from the uh, Hollywood mega studios, the animations, the Disney's, the the um uh dreamworks and all that all that good stuff you know we were just thrilled when the show would show up in the ratings mm -hmm. um occasionally and uh and and even more thrilled when they'd send us to comic cons or conventions or do little special things we didn't think you know back in the early days uh we didn't think that anyone would be interested on social media and what we were doing behind the scenes or anything like that and so we just, uh, I was way late. I, I think I, I, I started that Twitter 2015 or something. And I posted like three times and it was more about baseball <laughs> and, uh, and I didn't really know what to do with it. You know, uh, I, sh I should have been doing this all along, but we were, you know, we were still working on the show and we were putting in long hours and it, you know, we, we, the last thing you want to do, spending 80, 90 hours a week on a computer is, is, is do social media at one or two in the morning, you know? So, um, I, I think gradually some of the guys warmed to it, especially the act, you know, the actors, the voiceover actors realized that a social media following could, you know, could be good for business. So I think they were the first to, among the first to adopt it along the crew. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, they are definitely much more forward facing Dana and, and, and Carrie, I can definitely relate to what you're saying, because even when I started the podcast, I'm like, does anyone care if I'm sitting here describing like the background and like digging into details of this background? But uh, I guess uh, we're in that time where people are starting to be interested. I, I don't remember people talking about this stuff even 10 years ago, but uh, I guess there's just kind of this interest now, maybe because as, as technology has gotten more accessible to people to make their own kind of animations and stuff, because I know a lot of my listeners are artists as well. 
Yeah. So maybe that's where a lot of this interest comes from is more people are kind of getting into that, uh, at least as a hobby, but a lot probably have professional aspirations and they're kind of more interested in that kind of thing. I, I, I think so. It's good to hang out. You know, I've followed uh, probably, I don't know, 50 artists and animators and even artists from the past, you know, vintage uh, illustrators and stuff who I admired as a kid looking through the art books and stuff. And, uh, but I remember something Dave told me way early on in, in the show, once the show started getting a DVD, he says, uh, you know, we had a very, uh, a very intricate style for the backgrounds. It was highly detailed. And at the time there was really nothing like that going on in American illustration. And, uh, so we put a lot of work into it. And I remember Dave saying one time, you know, with, with DVDs, now you can stop on every frame and every people are going to look at every frame. So, uh, you know, make it your best. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, I have to ask if you are familiar, there, there's a video out there called Brood Witch Reanimated. And what it is, is a bunch of animators took like little segments of the Aqua Teen episode <laughs> Brood Witch, and then they redrew it all in their own style. So yeah, it's like not only are, are people pausing this frame by frame, but a lot of people are going through the effort of, of redrawing your work essentially in their own style. So there's a video out now of Broodwitch, and I know that there is a group of animators right now <laughs> redoing the Rabot episode. Yes, I saw a little clip for that. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I've seen little what what anyone can fit on Twitter. I've seen the little Broodwitch things, you know, just mm -hmm. tiny little clips. I haven't seen the whole, uh, is the whole is the whole thing out yet? Yeah, oh all, yeah, that, yeah, the Broodwitch is on YouTube, yeah. You know, there's another one of some guy actually, some chef actually made the sandwich. He baked the red, Fred with the devil horns and the yeah it looks like real it's, it's incredible so let's take a step back a little bit because like we were joking about that you are kind of off the grid uh there's not a whole lot of information out about you as i understand it you grew up in florida is that correct uh, i did i grew up on the beach in florida and uh played all the sports wanted to be professional sports person Mm -hmm. But I, I, I've been drawing since I was five or six, like most artists do, you know, and copying comic strips. And I think I, I had a comic strip when I was seven or eight <laughs> about an Einstein looking professor with a with a wise cracking parrot on his shoulder. I think it was called the professor or something. I don't know. But we did. We all traced the Sunday comics, you know, back in the day with newspapers and uh, and sometimes put the uh, uh, what was that stuff that came in the egg? Silly putty. And you could press it on and peel it off and you get a reverse image. You know, we, we all, everybody did. Yes. That, you know? Yeah. But in high school, I started, uh, in junior high, I started winning uh, local awards and then state awards. And uh, I remember my high school baseball coach getting extremely pissed off. And we were a good baseball team. That I decided to take a game off and uh, drive to Tallahassee for the state art finals, which I won an award at. Wow. Um, and so I, I realized then that this was probably the direction this was going. So then I went to University of Georgia and got a, um, they didn't have an illustration degree, but they had a graphic design degree. And I tell people many times, I never thought this would happen, but you know, I wanted to draw and paint pictures, which I ended up doing. Um, but the font and typography education I got at the University of Georgia I've used thousands of times. It's probably the most valuable thing I learned in college. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and I love, you know, my history and, and English and all that. I probably changed majors eight or nine times, archaeology, anthropology, history, English lit, right? Whatever. And like people do. That's why we're there, right? To figure out what we want to do. 
I talked to an archaeology major, a grad student one time. He says, no, man, don't do it. We just we just spend all summer out in the sun <laughs> baking with a with a little toothbrush and a paintbrush and uncovering stuff. He says, if you want to do that, be, be my guest. L- little things like that on the way help guide me to my. And uh, and then I got out of college, did everything but illustration. I bartended. I lifeguard. I worked on the oil rigs offshore off of Louisiana. Did a lot of outdoor adventure stuff, hiking, climbing. And then I just got to Atlanta, started knocking on doors, and uh, Turner Broadcasting was the had an in-house uh, advertising department. My first professional job was doing a an oil painting of a VHS cover for WCW wrestling. Oh wow! Okay, that's cool. <laughs> so, and, uh, so there, my career was launched. Would you happen to remember what year that was? I'd like to try and find that if I could. Oh man, it was uh, late. 80s or 92 or whatever like um i remember it was like six or seven guys uh portraits oil portraits i remember lex luger was one of them and uh they're behind it it was a cage match kind of thing i guess so they're behind a chain link fence with their hands kind of and there's six or seven or eight i forget how many right whatever one day i was bringing a painting in uh to cnn center which is downtown atlanta at the time it's been sold i don't think it's called cnn center anymore a couple of times. One time, Ted Turner was there just looking at me. There was a dress code and I wasn't in it. And he gave me this <laughs> glare like, uh, you know, your employee of mine, what are you doing? Uh, and another time, early Monday morning, about 830 on a Monday morning, I'm on the ground parking deck. The elevators open up and there is uh, Ric Flair in a very rumpled gold shiny suit and two very tall good-looking blonde women in mini skirts who on each side yeah on each side exactly <laughs> clearly have slept in them too and they smelled of champagne and mimosas and and cigarette smoke so i don't think they got any sleep <laughs> <laughs> and they were there he was he was in character already he was going up to the boardroom and he was going to pitch an idea or whatever they were doing up there uh-huh. you know? oh, that's uh, great. but you'd always see some in- interesting characters down there the road wa- road warriors are gigantic in person by the way <laughs> I'd imagine. I'd imagine if you're a wrestling fan. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I grew up on wrestling, so it's always a oh, thrill yeah, cool. for me to hear when you guys mention it. Like, like Jay mentioned that on the show they would use explosion effects that they got from like <laughs> WWF Raw or something like that at the time. So it's just these cool little connections between yeah. the two that you wouldn't quite expect. But okay, to get back to it, you are working at Turner at the time. I was an oil painter and acrylics when I started out. I did a lot of work for Turner Broadcasting, the studios that produced the commercials for all the Turner networks. And uh, uh, the guy that ran that, Chuck Brock, who's still my friend, uh, became my boss. He hired me on and taught me television production. Did that for four or five years, but we would all have our favorite clients as we would we would get a script from the writer or producer from whatever network, and we would make the visuals for the for the 30-second Cartoon Network spot or TNT or TBS or CNN, whatever it might be. Mm. Uh, and then we'd sit in with an edit room and we'd feed graphics to the editor as they put it together with the voiceover or, or whatever it might be. And I, of course, love to do uh, uh, Cartoon Network stuff, on-air stuff. And uh, um, so those, they were my favorite clients. I ended up doing stuff for Dave, uh, uh, the original Space Ghost, yes. uh, yeah. coast-to-coast stuff, little mm-hmm. storyboards or little things here or there you know, to help them out. And I, and I really liked it. Do you remember your first impression of working with those guys? Well, I didn't. uh, I wasn't working for Cartoon Network at the time. I was working for the Turner Studios, which did Mm -hmm. kind of an in-house 
ad agency production facility. And so I was uh, kind of on the outside looking in as far as Cartoon Network uh, uh, goes. And of course, there was no such thing actually as Adult Swim technically. Mm -hmm. I remember Dave talked to me about this show and I would watch it and I, you know, reusing the Hanna-Barbera characters and, and, and stuff. And I, and, and, uh, I thought it was very creative. And then you just look around and you read and you listen and it started catching on amazing. You know, it started like a little, when you're camping outdoor and you have a little fire and you keep blowing on it to, to, to get the kindling going that, and it just kept growing and growing. And, uh, uh, the AV club would do reviews, you know, and, and I know that was a badge of honor for them. <laughs> they got their first AV club review and it seemed to catch on. It, it was like nothing else that was being done, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, you know, it was uh, adults animation, but in this completely different style, it wasn't necessarily shock humor, just very, very strange. So, so you start working a little bit on Space Ghost, then what happens? Uh, yes. I was working for the, I, um, I was working for the Turner, um, um, production. Uh, and so Cartoon Network or, or uh, on air, meaning the commercials for Cartoon Network, they were in 30 second spots or Space Ghost, they would come over to us or another outside production agency when they needed some artwork or they needed to, to shoot something in the studio or whatever it is. So I wasn't working directly for them. I was just doing mm -hmm. little, little things for Dave that he needed. He knew that I could do them. And I, I also did a lot of stuff for, uh, Matt Thompson and Adam Reed, who did the show Archer and um, C-Lab and Exticles and, uh, you know, all that other stuff. And they were writing um, spots for On Air for Cartoon Network back at the time. So those guys were my favorite clients. So I just gravitated towards uh, back then Cartoon Network, then what became Adult Swim. And uh, and so then I quit. I, I quit the studio. And then uh, that same year, Adults uh, uh, Aqua Teen started. And Dave had had a 3D guy, John Schnepp, I believe his name was, yeah, uh, do some uh, rough 3D animation, um, and uh, and then he bailed. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, okay. so Dave said we need somebody that can do this stuff very detailed and replicate a 3D style. And so um, I did the first one or two seasons on the Bondi Blue iMac. Oh, the first or second year it came I know out. What you're talking about, yeah. In, in wonderful low def. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of the bane of my existence at this point, trying to get artwork uh, for the podcast because everything is so, <laughs> it's like 480p, oh, if yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. It was, yeah, it was 480, yeah, I, as, I, as I recall. And then we went up to 720, you know, like, wow, <laughs> oh. big time. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you end up, like, leaving Turner? Well, we, we, I had a, a, a nice, good run there. We won lots of international awards, and, and I just got burned out. And uh, so I wanted to uh, sit for a month and go hike and go travel and climb or whatever and figure out what I was going to do next. And then Dave called, and that was it. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I only had a couple months off and then <laughs> went, right, went, went right back to it. Um, obviously, you were familiar with Dave, and you were familiar with Space Ghost. Uh, did, did you ever really watch Space Ghost? Like, was that in your style of humor or not really? Um, I was aware of it. Um, uh, sometimes I didn't even have cable back in the day, so I would not have been able to see it. But I saw it in the edit rooms all the time being put together, so I knew exactly what it was. I never was on set when they were filming a celebrity, so I didn't have the inside crew view of it. But I'd walk by the edit rooms and, you know, you could hear 
George Lowe during Space Ghost, and the editors would do the same line 20 times to get it just right, right. get the frame just right, left to right, you know? Uh-huh. And uh, so I knew exactly what it was, and I was familiar with the humor. And uh, uh, I remember watching the Beck episode once, and I laughed out loud about three or four times. And <laughs> <laughs> um, Okay, so I, I, I want to know what your kind of reaction was, the best you could remember it, to Aqua Teen Hunger Force when Dave approached you with the project because i can only imagine how how crazy it was for him to describe to people before it was you know kind of a thing you know uh yeah i don't you know dave might not even have told me the whole uh have told me the whole thing he kind of works like that sometimes he would say hey could you do some sketches of this house or something and could we see it kind of thing i don't know if i knew immediately what was going on but after the first couple round of sketches i guess they talked it over and uh and so then I was, uh, then I was on board and, uh, you know, I think it took, I, I think, I think Dave and Matt have mentioned that it took about a year to make the pilot. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and so there were, there were a lot of things that, uh, that we were trying out style wise and, um, editing wise, you know, you get your feel, you get the rhythm for it. The writers get a rhythm, the editors get a rhythm. And as you start working together, it gets easier like any show, but we were, uh, it was kind of cool. Um, we all joked that it was only going to be five or six episodes and we'd all be doing something else. Mm. So they said, don't, you know, don't buy a house yet. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and that was the running joke for the whole time. And then suddenly, you know, uh, uh, a pilot turned into 10 and then 24 episodes. Mm. And then, and then it just kept, kept on going. Yeah. For, uh, 15 years. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. 15 years. So, I, I've seen like the early John Schnepp stuff that was in Rabot, and also there's like an un, like a rough cut of Rabot, yeah, um, as well with more of his artwork in it. But I know, for example, in that episode, you did when they're at the mall, you did that background art when they are like uh, in this perfume store or something like that. You did the background yes. for that one, yes. Um, when you came on, do you remember what? You mentioned that they wanted it in a 3D style, but I'm curious if you remember really any kind of discussion on how they wanted to handle the art style, because I've heard you speak in DVD commentaries about how the the backgrounds are kind of a straight man to the characters, because the backgrounds aren't typically inherently wacky or crazy. They're kind of more subdued a bit. Yes. Um, so w- did that come from you, or did they already have that in mind? Well, the... the um it came from me. It was my natural computer Photoshop style. Um, and John's, uh, John Schnepp's uh, backgrounds were pretty clean and, and kind of pristine and just basically laid out 3D stuff. It wasn't very, you know, it wasn't fancy. Um, and he was doing, I'm sure, 10 other things at the time. And he was made time whenever he could for these. And um, I think he was actually, I think he helped on the edit the first, um, at least the first few episodes. I, I, I might be wrong on that. Uh, but the guy could do many, many things, and um, he might have just been slumming it to do the <laughs> to do these uh, backgrounds. I, I don't know. I mean, he already had a career, right, you know? right. But then, uh, as as an ex oil painter, photorealistic, highly detailed kind of stuff, I realized that the absurdity of the premise of this thing could really like you said, play the straight man, you'll notice. So a gritty reality is what I was shooting for. So you notice Mm. everything's a little, uh, uh, there's, there's peeling paint, Mm. there's mold, there's dirt, Mm -hmm. there's trash. 
it, it just it to me it just pointed up the absurdity of what we were we were watching. If we had a background like I thought, like at the time, uh, um, The Simpsons or Family Guy or something like that, to me it wouldn't have been as funny to have a cartoony background. You know, it wouldn't there wouldn't be that contrast there. Exactly. Yeah. Since you speak of uh, some of the, the the backgrounds and the props being dirty, I actually did have a question for you, kind of regarding that. So uh, recently I covered the episode Unremarkable Voyage, and this one kind of epitomizes what I'm going to ask you. And, and in, this, uh, in that episode, Frylock creates a shrink ray, and the episode opens with him uh, kind of explaining what the shrink ray does to the other Aqua Teens. And he's pointing out on this whiteboard, and the whiteboard is all dingy and gross. It's like duct taped together, and it looks like somebody got it out of the trash. But then Frylock brings his invention out, and his inventions are basically always really high tech looking and pristine they're not dirty at all like you would expect them to be i'm kind of wondering uh w where that decision came from to keep some items like frylock's inventions in particular nice and then other items are not so nice i think i think the subconscious philosophy was that anything frylock could do on his own and i grew up with two younger brothers and everything you try and do something they'd screw it up you know or break it or <laughs> or uh tear up the drawings or trash the whatever yeah. So I think Frylock is the brains, obviously, the voice of reason of the outfit. And so anything that he could do on himself would have been like, uh, you know, he's he's a scientist, uh, uh, would have been pristine. But anything that could be used by all of the Aqua Teens in the house would be trashed. So a whiteboard or a box or the kitchen or a frying pan or wh whatever it is. Right. Yeah. Those contrasts are just so fun and I think keep the show interesting. And especially because of how simplistic the show was due to the budget, yeah, those kind of decisions really made it feel like there was more going on maybe than there really was than what they could afford to do, just based on those like kind of visual distinctions between these two kind of assets. Oh, that's interesting because, yeah, they, they never ever had a source of income except for Working Stiffs, the episode Working mm -hmm. Stiffs. Mm -hmm when all of them got a job. Right. But uh, uh, so I thought and all communal pop property must have been picked up at a yard sale <laughs> or on the curb. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Know. I mean, I mean, growing up, I grew up uh, pretty poor, not as destitute as the Aqua Teens, but like I could definitely <laughs> see similarities. So I remember always kind of responding to that um, as somebody who did grow up poor. Like, for example, in, in The Simpsons, they're supposed to be poor, but after a certain period of time, they're, like, going to Europe and doing all this kind of crazy stuff. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Aqua Teen was always a bit more grounded in a way, even though it's about these talking food products, right? Like, they're still... Like, I, I could always see those kind of uh, similarities between actually growing up poor and what was kind of uh, depicted in the show. So that's something that always kind of drew me to it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, interesting. You know, I never thought about that, but yeah, how did Homer Simpson afford Sherpas? Climbing Mount <laughs> right, Springfield. Right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah, it's just like, yeah. I mean, obviously, with the Simpsons, they've been on the air for over thirty years, so it's like after a while, yeah. they have to do something different. But uh, sure. yeah, that's just something I always appreciate <laughs> about Aqua Teen. Can you kind of get into some of the challenges that you may have faced working on this show, either because of the budget or uh, just the technology of the time, particularly in the in the earlier years? Yeah, the challenge was basically we chose that highly detailed style. Um, but you know, the, the, the lack of money is, was well documented in dozens of interviews. And, uh, so we ran into time crunch with that. You, you'll notice we reused, uh, many props, uh, after, I, I think we went at high definition about 2006 or seven, I believe it was. 
And so once you go to high def, we reuse those props as much as we could. Like you'll see a, you'll see a, the uh, Aqua Teen living room trash with bottles or whatever. Um, there's a uh, a beer brand that that appears repeatedly throughout the series called Red Spud. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you'll see bottles and cans and coasters and a beer sign, a neon beer sign with red spot on it. But uh, once you get those beer cans done at eight different angles or crushed states of crushedness, uh, you can reuse them over and over and over. And it, and it just lends a, a kind of a trash, you know, that that gritty look that we were talking about earlier. So we did get more efficient once once these things were rendered. And the three minute shorts, like I believe you pointed out the other day, the uh, the grill was used. Mm-hmm. Um, as a, uh, as a, as a, in a Brookstone like store. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, um, so yeah, they reused a lot of, uh, my backgrounds and, uh, from the previous episodes and the, 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 the mantra was always recycle, recycle, recycle for the budgetary reasons and time reasons. And uh, initially we did it initially, Dave and Matt did it almost to poke fun at the self uh, at, at ourselves. And they would, they would point it out and because everyone made so much of the lack of animation, but mm-hmm. those animators worked hard too, yeah, man. They yeah. were, they were, yeah. <laughs> you know, it wasn't as bad as everybody said it was, mm-hmm. you know, I think that the fact that also reusing backgrounds and props also kind of, for me, at least, it, it almost in a way makes those backgrounds and props like side characters because you return to them so often and, and see them so often. Oh, yeah, yeah. As opposed to like a show with more money, they're not as meaningful in a way, I guess. Oh, that's interesting because isn't uh, uh, Indian cinema is like that, right? They use background props over and over again to lend a sense of comfort to the audience. Uh, yeah, very interesting. Uh, I've never heard anyone uh, say that before, but I think it it, it visually certainly lent uh, continuity to it. And um, and we all know that that beer brand with the red label showed up in any time there was beer. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. basically <laughs> yeah, any point after Super Trivia, that episode, because there was the sign in the background. Yes, it was just any like any time after that. Uh, it was just always red spud everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> you know, we had to uh, because there were three different, as we talked about a minute ago three different time periods where the definition of our industry changed, you know, like the technology did. So a lot of those props and Carl's room and everything else, everything was done three times over mm-hmm. as, as we up and then up again. And then finally, by the first movie, everything was pretty much right. done. You know, we used that for the rest of the, uh, the rest of the run. Mm-hmm. How, how was it for you working in like 480p versus like 720 or 1080p like did you prefer to work in higher resolution and higher definition or not well i i think so and i think most artists would because um um what you put down on your drawing tablet uh actually makes it to (laughs) it makes it to higher res and 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 more importantly you know it's tough to watch the early episodes now because it's they're so blurry Mm -hmm. and 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 low res and you mentioned one of the challenges, but um, it's been, you know, pretty well talked about that the editors, we, we had a different way of producing the show from Hollywood. The editors would actually do most of the storyboards, like a moving storyboard, it would be called. And decisions would be made on the fly. There weren't detailed storyboards where everyone were on, was on the same page. So I never knew what part of a background was going to get zoomed into a thousand percent. You know, if they go really close on Meatwad's eyes or mouth or something, uh, the background breaks up, you know, in, in a lower res uh, thing. So 
uh, when hi, I was I was thrilled when high res came around, <laughs> and so I I would do these things at three times the definition necessary. They were huge files, uh, sometimes up to three hundred megs for a background. Wow! And um, so they look pristine. The later episodes, they can zoom in anywhere they want to. So a little fiber on the carpet, good to go. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, and, <laughs> so, and that's the same. Like I've experienced that because particularly with text, when I cover an older episode, yeah. it's like I, I can't read half of it. And it's like, oh, yeah. I wish I could, because I'm sure that Bob or whoever put a lot of time into that. And I can't even see what it says. But then if I jump and cover a, a more recent episode, then it's like, I'm almost shocked how crystal clear everything is. And I can actually yes. read things and make out details. Well, yeah, that's a good point, too. The, the, the work that one puts in as an artist or an animator, um, the animation held up a little bit better. The, the old episodes, I mean. But um, visually, but um, yeah, I, Dave and Matt let me have pretty, pretty free reign with those labels. And I'd put little puns and little jokes and, uh, 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 you know, everything is gluten free or now with real corn or wh- whatever. <laughs> and I read a lot of labels in real life. So I had a lot of fun with this stuff and I knew it would never be seen, but they're little tiny Easter eggs. Uh, and um, I'm, I'm glad it, I'm glad one person was looking at him. Thank you, Ron. <laughs> Well, I know uh, in one of the commentaries, a frustration that you express is that people falsely assume that every background in Aqua Teen is from a different TV show just because like the first season borrowed some assets from other shows because of the budget. Yes. Um, Yes. So, you know, one of my goals, I guess, through the podcast is just pointing out that, no, somebody made these for the show. It wasn't just from some other TV show, like most people assume for some reason. Uh, yeah, well, actually, you know, we kept the, if you look at the front of, uh, the street of Carl's house and the Aqua Teen house, mm-hmm. you know, originally John had done just the front of the Aqua Teen house. And so eventually we had a street of like seven or eight houses, you know, long pan and, uh, that we would sometimes use pieces of if, 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 if somebody's going down the street or whatever, uh, until I forget when, but we kept in the same way the of, of Bollywood keeps those cardboard people in the background and or, or the same props throughout the movie. That original city in the background was from a, uh, a Hanna Barbera cartoon, and we just kept it, even though the houses were pristine, high res, <laughs> high def. Eventually, we redid it. And I honestly, I forget wh- when it was. Uh, maybe it was for the movie, or maybe it was after. Mm. But and then the uh, the first time we see the mall for Rabot, that is a uh, that is a Powerpuff, I believe, from a Powerpuff uh, Girl thing. Mm. And I later redid that uh, uh, in a higher res thing. But I kept the general the general uh, uh, composition of it. But uh, made made it more real, you know, like the Aquatine style, like a real building right. kind of thing, and 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 oil stains in the parking lot, and and uh, you know all that stuff. Right, right, yeah. Because I know that that original cityscape behind the Aquatine's house, I think it's from SWAT Cats, was the show that that <laughs> oh, was yeah? from. And so, how did you handle something like that when you guys went to HD? Did you redraw that yourself, or were you guys somehow able to upscale that at the time? Um, there was no real upscale technology at the time. You know, the, the joke was trash in trash out. You know, <laughs> it, it was only, we used to laugh at those detective shows that say zoom in uh-huh. and it go, you know, like uh, that technology enhance. does not, did, did not, yeah, enhance. It does not exist back in the mid two thousands. 
so what I did with that particular background is I went in and I sharpened up all the outlines of the buildings. I redid the sky, the clouds, sharpened up all the sky. And then um, if something looked really bad, I'd redrew the windows or the little seams between sides of the building. Mm-hmm. So they were sharper. So, so we just kept layering it on top and making it, <laughs> <laughs> making it nicer and nicer as the years went on. Yeah. And then, and then we finally redid the whole thing, as I recall. Uh, but yeah, so if that's Swatcast, thank you, Squat Cat Illustrator. <laughs> <laughs> the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, I, that's right, man. I, I'd imagine more people have seen it as an Aqua Team background <laughs> at this point than how it was used in the actual show. That that could that could be. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how how long Swat Cats ran for, but I don't know if it ran for fifteen years like Aqua Team did. I remember. You know what I remember most about Swat Cats is. Uh, they were some of the first to use anime animation style for like smoke swirling around. Oh, really? Uh, and I remember being fascinated by that when I saw that in the early 2000s or whenever it was, late late 90s. When I, uh, when I worked for the production company, we had a tape room with hundreds of thousands of hours of um, uh, footage of the all the Cartoon Network shows. So I learned how to animate by taking those... Uh, digital betas putting them in our our machines and cleaning up the animation for air for a uh uh, uh an app you know a, a commercial a 30 second commercial mm-hmm. for dexter's lab or powerpuff girls or cow and chicken or or all that all those great shows from the 90s and so i would take them frame by frame and clean them up and i saw how those animators animated it and uh, so what would that process of cleaning up look like like what would you actually be doing for that well, we so so uh, so if we had a script from a um, one of the producers at Cartoon Network and they were doing say a a uh, thirty second uh, Dexter's Lab spot, uh, I would get the script and then I would look through hours and hours of digital tape to find the right motions that the characters were doing to match the script that might be good to set out a. An environment of, um, you know, so the script might say uh, Dexter's in his lab and yells at his sister and uh, uh, holds up a beaker or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, all the stuff mm-hmm. he did. Right. So I would look through uh, um, sometimes it could take a couple of days. We look through th- uh, hundreds of hours of this stuff that we all, we had every episode of Hanna-Barbera on tape. Mm-hmm. We had all the, all the old Popeye episodes from the 1930s and 40s, you know, that that occasionally I'd clean up also. So it was a great education in animation. And uh, and then we'd uh, we'd uh, recolor every cell essentially digitally, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, and an editor would do what we call lip flap. I'd I'd make three or four uh, uh, mouth um, positions, and the editor would time it to the script that the uh, that the writer, the producer, was recording somewhere else around town at that time. <laughs> <laughs> and then the editors would put it all together, match the lip flap to the sound, the audio. And uh, my graphics or animation, or I would give them three or four positions for a pose, and they would just do a one or two frame, you know, loop. The, the cheaper and faster, the better, mm-hmm. you know. But it, but it, that's how I learned all this stuff, and it was a lot of fun. So I have been trying to track down an answer to this question, and uh, this is the <laughs> question that I reached out to Dave with, and I've reached out to other people who worked on the show too, and nobody seems to know. So. In a season two episode of Aqua Teen, there is a a bulldozer, and on the side it says Judith Dre paving. And then in a, the episode Kidney Car, where Meatwad gets a car, he gets a bill that he needs to fix up his car. And 
uh, the top says Judith Dre towing. And so I couldn't find out who Judith Dre was. And I was uh, asking around. And my understanding is she seemed to be some sort of person who worked in standards and practices. So that's what I reached out to Dave about because I'm like, yeah, you know, what does that mean? And he said, I don't know. Bob might know. So I don't know if you if you remember if Judith Dre was somebody that you had to kind of deal with in standards and practices. That, uh, Ronnie, that does not ring a bell at all. Oh, um, no. <laughs> most of the time, I remember, you know, on bulldozers and dump trucks and all that kind of stuff or tow trucks, I would put D&M for Dave and Matt. And uh, I don't know who Judith, I don't know where that came from. Occasionally, Nick. Uh, in Katanawat? Yes, Nick would do some art, okay. you know, if we were in a bind and stuff. And he was good at he could do basically. He was a jack of all uh, is a jack of all trades, and uh, he could jump in there and do some Photoshop art. He did the original Boxy Brown uh, character, and uh, for instance, and so he can handle himself uh, uh, on Photoshop. So maybe it was a Nick thing, but I I don't recall. Um, uh, I've never, to my mind, I've never heard uh, of Judith Dre. I, I don't know. But now I'm going to watch that episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, because my assumption was that somebody put a joke that got rejected. So uh, you guys just put the S&P's oh. person name is my assumption of what happened. Oh, well, then that would be an editor uh, question. If uh, may maybe Jay Edwards. OK, because I, well, I asked Jay, I asked him. He didn't know. He reached out to Ned. And I guess Ned was the one who said that. <laughs> Oh, I think she worked in standards and practices. Um, oh. I'm talking to Nick next month. I'll ask him about it and see. And if he doesn't know, then I guess <laughs> we'll we'll see if we could find out. But oh, uh, that's that's interesting. Uh, so maybe it was done in edit uh, uh, over. I, we got we got reined in, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of times. Um, mm -hmm. I remember one um, uh, one of the a plutonian phone number. <laughs> Uh, at some point it was either on their, uh, business card or what, whatever, whatever it was. And so I just pulled out a random series of numbers and something that you would get from space. There's no dashes or anything. It didn't make any sense. <laughs> Alphanumeric 13 or 14 digits, whatever. So I got an email from standards and practice oh, no. from legal. It's like, no, you can't do this. I said, what? <laughs> and they said, no, people could mistake it for a VIN number for an automobile and use it to steal cars oh, or something. I said, I said, Really? <laughs> and, and, and I and I looked it up and I, and I know I was poking the lion by mm -hmm. doing this, you know, I was and, and but I said, you know, the VIN numbers in the United States are only these amount of, uh, <laughs> you know, 12 or whatever. And this is 16. And they write back. Well, there's a country in South America where they're 16. So so it was like a <laughs> it was a. <laughs> It was a standoff of the will. Of course, they won because right. they're legal and their standards and practice. Yeah, yeah. But I think somebody just had a bad day, bad week over there. Right, and, right. Uh, but the little stuff like that, you know. Sure. <laughs> so, so they they may well have taken and whatever I put there and, and put something over. They may well have. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I typed, I've typed that name in. I haven't found out who that was. Like, I know in other instances, they had to replace swear words and they would use the name James Bagley because he worked in standards and practices at the time. So <laughs> I assume this was a similar situation, but. Oh, you know, I bet it was. That, that's some good detective work there, man. In 2012, you started to become listed as an art director for the show as opposed to just props and backgrounds. Was this kind of like a formality or did you actually take on a new role at that time to get the art director title? Um, it was not a new role. I did the exact same thing I always did. Um, but 
we didn't in the early days we didn't really know how to credit we you know we didn't know how the animation business worked you know and so in the animation world the art director is the one that determines the look of the world the environment that the characters live in the animation director handles the characters in the animation the character design uh but we had so few people working on that show um you know you'll notice something uh uh when my name comes up it'll say backgrounds and stills that's stills it, it means props okay. but we didn't know any better mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so and so i had a i talked with one of the producers or something and i said you know an, an art director this is i should be should have been credit you know being credit art director it it was not a really new title didn't pay any more money or whatever but it just it was just something that just crossed the t it felt good to do you know dot the i mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course, that's something about all you guys is you're credited for one thing, but you've probably done like seven other things <laughs> on the episode that it is like nobody will ever really know about just because of the way that it worked at the time. Uh, yeah, there, there are no unions. There were no uh, everybody did whatever they could to pitch in. Uh, every I, you know, we used to have a joke that that everybody you, you couldn't work on the show unless you played guitar <laughs> <laughs> and uh you know, Matt and Dave play and I play and Phil Sampson, one of the editors plays and, and Phil and Matt, uh, can really shred. And, uh, and, and Sean Coleman, um, uh, he's a great guitar player. The, uh, the, the guy who does outside sound work. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, guitar is a big part. And, uh, you know, Matt plays some excellent solos on so many episodes and, uh, you'll see a lot of guitars and amps. <laughs> Yeah, I like recently you shared you wanted to do like an orange amp head or whatever, and you had <laughs> yeah. to put red and yellow because you couldn't put orange on it. Yeah, I, I put that in there. Nobody said no. So it just it just got through. Mm. And, and, and Well, that's uh, another thing I've always liked about the show was all of the music humor because I'm a musician as well. So, oh, yeah, like you said, Matt's guitar playing or just the visual jokes that you added, like. I just love the visual of the Dr. Weird guitar with like, it. I counted how many frets it was one time. It was like some insane number. And to me, it's just the funniest thing, especially when Shake's playing it, playing some sappy love song on this yeah. like crazy metal yeah. guitar is just, I don't know, so funny to me. Yeah, I think I, as I recall, uh, Dave or Matt or both of them, just they said, just just make it as insane as possible. And uh, <laughs> like what a scientist would do. And uh, and I and I think I shared on Twitter. Some guy actually made it and put a YouTube video. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find the video where he's actually making it, but he shows himself like in the finishing stages of making the thing. And so there's a video. I I don't know if it was the same guy. I think it is. It was the same music shop, I believe. But I don't know if it was the same guy that made it. But um, but uh, yeah, it's like as low as an octave can go, as low as a note can go. Because it, <laughs> I don't know where where would he get guitar strings for that thing? They were like five right. feet long, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even think about that. <laughs> He'd have to fabricate them himself, I guess, yeah. if he wants to play. <laughs> yeah, whatever that roll is at the Gibson or, or uh, you know the 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 Fender Bullet roll, they just unrolled right. it and chopped <laughs> off. A... <laughs> so. You mentioned on Twitter the the rabbit not rabbit background that you did that didn't get used in the episode. I'm I'm curious if you can recall any other assets that you made for Aqua Teen that didn't get used. Uh, yeah, there were. Gosh, I, the, the the episode escapes me, but I believe it was the last season or second to last season where they just ended up rewriting half the episode. I think uh, Mike Lazo, the guy that ran um, Adult Swim, had a problem with the script or. 
or or it was legal or standards and practice, or maybe Dave and Matt just didn't like it and wanted to make it better. I'm not sure. And so we ended up redoing, uh, it was a scene where uh, there's a big fountain in a mall, which they reuse for the aqua dunk. Um, yeah, so, boy, for three weeks, man, we just, the animators did new animated. I did new backgrounds, right, whatever. And we really, and I think we got it done on time. But um, uh, occasionally something got left out, you know. Um, um, originally, uh, the editors know much more about this, Jay and uh, Ned and mm-hmm. and all and uh, Paul and all these guys. But the episodes, I think, were 22 minutes long. And then they started getting shorter and shorter as it was a television, you know, standard back then as more commercials would come in. And pretty soon, um, not 22 minutes, but 11 minutes, two 11-minute two episodes yeah. for a half an hour. So it's 22 minutes total. And then it started getting cut and cut and cut and cut and cut as, as we started the ad sales staff would sell more ads and we would make money and that's how we got paid, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I think, uh, sometimes finished scenes might've been chopped here and there Mm. front or back just to fit into the time constraints, you know? Right. Right. Uh, A lot of decisions were made in those edit rooms and you notice, uh, uh, through the, through the seasons, uh, there are some times where even the the episodes aren't the same length, you know, by a few seconds. (laughs) So yeah, things, things were cut just out of necessity. I, I don't uh, I don't remember a whole lot of stuff being being cut. You know, once 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 we were in, we were in. You know, we had it made. They didn't want to spend more money. They didn't want to spend more time, mm-hmm. and it just mm-hmm. and um, you know, we, we're looking back on it, we all have stuff. Any any creator looks back and goes, oh, I wish I would have done that a little differently or 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 something. Mm-hmm. But uh, so sometimes, as they say in our industry, it was time to put your pencils down and uh, <laughs> and just turn it in and let it go. You know, let it fly. Mm-hmm. I'm curious how working on aqua teen has influenced your work since then since your time on the show um uh, well that's that's a great question I, I learned what i learned working with uh dave and matt and the editors is that uh it can always be made better constant refining of a joke or a timing one frame front or back or a little nuance of an eye or a smile or something, you can always work to get something better. And, um, at some point you have to just let it go, you know, like, like, like we said, but, um, especially, especially jokes. So I, I, you know, I mess around with writing and I've pitched some stuff and all that kind of stuff. And I always say, you know, can that, can that joke be better? What, what would Dave and Matt do? You know, what would, uh, what would the Archer guys do? What would they do here? Would they let it lie or would they try for one more? Or is that a bridge too far? You know, so so I, I, I learned a lot about dialogue um, working with those guys. Uh, they're, they're excellent at um, like so many like the good animated shows are. They're excellent at the proper timing and it's not too long. It's not too short. It's a real art and it's a real skill that uh, they developed over years. So I learned a lot on that end about humor uh I, i've been a, a huge stand-up comedy fan for years and years and years and years my old college roommate used to run the punchline comedy club in atlanta and i would go i would go hang out at the bar in the back on a sunday night make sure i got the late show and i and i knew that the comics had a tiny little green room and they didn't want to stay back there and they had to get their check from the bartender or their cash or whatever the deal was mm-hmm. so i would just hang out at the bar and i was like the last one out and man i met all those you know uh, like you know John Stewart, Jay Leno. And wow. Okay. Joe Rogan and mm-hmm. uh, Colin Quinn and, you know, whoever came through town. 
So I've been a, a, a fan for a long time. I realized I couldn't do it for a living. I go out to drink beer with these guys or, 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 or the two or three opening acts. And I could hang for about 10 or 12 minutes over a pitcher of beer. And then these guys would just send it into a different gear, you know, like pros do. Uh, right, right. And uh, I realized that this is, you know, I need to stick with my day job of, of being an, <laughs> an illustrator. <laughs> so I'm wondering, what single piece of advice would you give yourself 20 years ago in regards to working on Aqua Teen, for, uh, like from knowledge that you gained while working on Aqua Teen. So if, if, if you see one of your old backgrounds, I guess, what advice would you give yourself? Uh, I would work smarter, not harder. If I would do a background, it would take two, uh, you know, a long pan or something with a lot of detail. And, you know, sometimes it would take, uh, God, two or three weeks or so. And, um, uh, but the, but the, but the leaves and the fourth layer of trees in the background before it hit the mountains didn't need to be delineated. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it was, it, it was more about the, the sense of thing. You're know, like, uh, I, I, I'd forgotten my painting background as an oil painter. I would have just loosed it in with some brush, but I didn't want to mix styles later on. We did, I got a little bit looser with the trees and it, I like this stuff a little bit better. But uh, I, I would say not labor over the details that might not matter to the viewer or uh, or or anyone else. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, especially when the show was so low res that you were probably right. you know, killing right. yourself over details that nobody even really saw once it made it to air. It, it really. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, and there was a you know, there's a safe. Uh, a safe zone around, you know, if you're looking on a TV monitor in a production studio. So there's a safe title area where type will show mm -hmm. and uh, uh, anything touching or uh, uh, beyond that is, you know, you're rolling the dice. And so I never really knew what would show up from my backgrounds. I had the, you know, I had the size I was working with, but every, every, uh, we were working with two different edit systems back then, as I recall. So I, I never really knew. Mm -hmm. Uh, now it's much more precise and everybody loves IDEF, you know, it's so much more rewarding. Uh, but yeah, I, I would work, I would work, uh, uh, smarter, not harder. Sure. I mean, that, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense based on what I've heard from this conversation. So, so far, um, when I had Dave on the show, he alluded to you getting burned out on Aqua Teen and you didn't return for Aquadonk side pieces or the 2022 film Plantasm. Uh, was this true? that you got burnt out on the show and, and that you, you chose not to return. Uh, yes, that's, that's true. I was renovating my house during, during the pandemic since not, nobody was working. Everybody had two years off. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so I said, why don't I renovate my old, uh, 1920s bungalow? And, uh, and I did with, with, uh, with my own two hands and my, and my, my buddy is a roofing contractor and he did the roof and his buddy did the, the HVAC. But so it was a, it was a, it was an intensive thing. And once I started talking to real estate agents, they said, Hey, you should sell this thing. So we set up a time constraint. You know, I was under deadline to renovate my own house, <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> to get the best prices of the year, which is spring in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and probably is in most places that right. have four seasons. Right. And, uh, and so I started thinking, you know, uh, I've got other projects I want to do, you know, as, as you know, the money, probably, honestly, we all talk about the budgets, you know, they were still don't swim budgets. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so, and so, uh, I, 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 I thought I'd said and done all I could do for the show. You know, uh, we had a good long run, uh, working on it since the beginning of 
was it 2000 the year 2000 aquatine because we were working on it for a year before the first episode aired right so it was really 16 full years and then and then uh in the last three or four years we were doing two shows we were doing the uh we were doing your pretty face is going to hell also. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, all of us were working very, very hard. And I just needed a break uh, to look around, to go climb a mountain somewhere and, mm -hmm. uh, uh, wrestle bobcats or something <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, run from grizzly bears. And, uh, just to, just to see what, you know, we, we all do that. We, we need to take our bearings from time to time. Mm -hmm. And so that was, that was that. And, uh, you know, the movie is so different. And I think it was, I think it, they did a, a, a brilliant thing where they removed the characters in the world of Aqua Teen Hunger Force. They're no longer beholden, tethered to the old locations, to their own looks. Frylock has a different look throughout the whole thing. Their, their own worlds, their own environments, their own personalities could change in and out now. And so they wanted a different background look for that too. I, I think I, I, I could have helped with the art direction, I think, whatever. But I, I just, I had other stuff I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think I think they generously offered. And uh, uh, now is kind of brilliant because they can go anywhere with this now. Right. And this thing could go on for years and years and years as they change universe. Mm -hmm. And I know Matt's a, a huge time travel, <laughs> yes. science fiction, time, yes. you know, uh, uh, a fan. And, and they could they could fully take advantage of that. There, there's no boundaries now. Uh, they could be ancient warriors in Greece and they could, you know, it, it doesn't matter. They've broken all the barriers now. Uh, there's no more tether. It's uh, I thought I thought it was brilliant in that way. So now, God, if you're. If you're uh, the powers that be, why wouldn't you knock out a special every other year or something right, for right. A, a 80 minutes or whatever? Why, why wouldn't you? you know? Well, that leads to my next question, because Aqua Teen was renewed for five more episodes. Uh, I kind of feel like I know the answer here, but will you be returning for those five new episodes? Never say never. But I think, you know, if I'm in their position, um, uh the movie seems to be getting the new, the second movie seems to be getting such good buzz with that different, uh, more cartoon, um, um, style. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's an efficiency now. Uh, there were, there were some, I've, I heard Dave talk somewhere. Maybe it was, um, your podcast about, um, about how there was a little learning curve working with new people, the production uh, facility doing the backgrounds and stuff. And, and it is true for 16 years, we all learned uh, new how to complete each other's sentences, essentially, you know, and, and, and like any, anything in life, any team. And, uh, um, so there was a learning curve there, but I think by now, after doing that movie, they, you know, the, surely they've worked that out and it could be a little smoother, uh, uh, in the future, uh, never say never, but, um, um, I'm sure they'll be just, just, just fine without me. You know? <laughs> well, the thing is like you weren't credited on the aqua donks, but they were obviously using your assets that you made in the past, you know? So it's like, in a way, even if you're not actively working on the show, you're probably still going to show up in it with your work because unless they going forward, they're just going to ditch everything like they did for the movie. Time will tell. I guess we'll see when those come out. Uh, yeah, well, I noticed in the movie, it looks like the, the, uh, the illustrators, the production company took my backgrounds and either applied a filter or they put a couple of layers of, uh, uh, you know, but the angles are the same, whatever. So I think they just painted over it to get a cohesive look, right? It's just, it was the smart, um, aesthetic, uh, continuity thing to do, you know? So it has a, has a nice, uh, consistent look throughout the whole, 
throughout the whole thing. So, uh, so yeah, even those backgrounds, so like, I don't know, nine or 10 of them I designed, they were just redone and repainted over. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I don't know, can anybody read those credits at the end of the Aquadonk things? Oh my gosh, <laughs> those are so annoying for me. I have to like go frame by frame. <laughs> well, what is that font, by the way? Or did somebody just hand do it? Like, I know, it's like it takes up the whole screen. They go by in half a second. It's just like, come on. I, I heard Dave say the only reason that they added those, like the credits aren't really important because they're internet videos, right? Yeah. So they only yeah. added them as a way to end the episode, I guess it's because that's that's how they're used to ending episodes. It's just cutting to credits, right. basically. So uh, yeah, he's like he, he was uh, kind of joking how it's just not necessary to even have those. But uh, yeah, it didn't look like there were much egos uh, ego going on in those credits, man. It's like you know, even David Matt's credits flash back in yeah, one tenth of a second. You know? <laughs> just, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Um, so that's it for my Aqua Teen questions. I have a couple uh, fan questions for you. And then after that, I'd, I want to talk a little bit about your work outside of Aqua Teen since your time on the show. So I, I have a question for you that comes from a uh, uh, somebody who goes by the name Rooster online. Uh, Rooster asks, first of all, Rooster wants to say thank you for uploading the concept art to Twitter. Uh, that that they really like seeing that. Oh, that's that's great. Uh, thank you for watching, uh, for looking at it, Rooster. Thank you. Uh, Rooster wants to know, uh, basically, whenever a scene takes place in the city, are the buildings in the background just like generic buildings or are they based on an actual city? Um, I think it would depend on the episode. Um, in the later, uh, from, from, the, from the movie on, I, um, I had a guy named, uh, trying to uh, think of his name. He was an illustrator, uh, uh, Montgomery. Um, he did the city background, so I'd send him sketches and uh show him how the scene might play out and he did a great job doing the um doing that city and that was used again a couple of times like car chases it's great so we do like a a long six or seven blocks and of course it's like the old flintstones the same cloud would go by you know whatever so we, we took our cue from the old hanna barbera stuff but then as we did a little uh 3d they could put those on a on a plane in 3d and have a uh, like the uh the napkin lad episode was a great chase scene mm. it was so much fun to do so we could really make it look cool, uh, but a lot of uh, a lot of things like uh, infrastructure, like overpasses and bridges and highways. I would go out to my neighborhood right off the intersection of 285 and 75 in Atlanta, and just take pictures, hundreds and hundreds of pictures. Uh, Matt Malero had an old uh, an old uh, Canon camera. He was a, he's a big photography buff. And uh, I bought it for a couple hundred bucks and uh, <laughs> it just went out. I'd go shoot photos of uh, overpasses and um, pilings and uh, homeless camps and you know, you know anything else we might need. Uh, Piedmont Park shows up in a few episodes, you know, or something resembling Piedmont Park. The buildings, th that city is uh, in the back of a park is uh, pretty much the buildings of Midtown Atlanta. Uh, overly simplified, of course. Right, but, right, uh, right. Uh, so it depends on the episode, Rooster. Uh, a lot of different stuff going on. Yeah, yeah. Of course, uh, talking with you here, uh, it's it's hard not to get into specifics because obviously you don't have the artwork in question in front of you. So like obviously with my questions, I've tried to avoid because I, I would love to have you here just over my shoulder and I point like, tell me about that. <laughs> tell me about that. But so uh, uh, a listener who goes by the name Oracle online uh, wants to know, did the backgrounds of the Boston episode ever get developed further than what we see in the leaked episode. So I'm sure you're familiar with that 
episode that never came out. Sure. Um, yeah, I think uh, for uh, some of them, the underpass uh, background was complete, um, where they have meat wads stuck up under the underpass full of light brights. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that 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 was finished, and then originally they had a um, underneath that. If you pan down, it was a it was a tall scene to pan up and down, mm. and they had a little uh, 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 a dais, uh, whatever you call it, a, a, a pulpit kind of thing, mm-hmm. and there was a spoof on. Uh, Meatwad and Shake were explaining to the media. There were a bank of microphones there, whatever. And they had a little spoof on the guys that in real life, you know, the guy's hair. A lot of people had a lot to say about that guy's hair. And so uh, we put an afro on Meatwad. And I forget what we did for 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 Shake. Um, uh, there's a giant light bright that was completely finished for the Aqua Teen backyard. Um, <laughs> uh, their luxury luxury uh penthouse condo in boston there's an interior shot there um that was man 80 percent done before they yanked it that's gotta be is that is that frustrating for you to be like i'm so close to being done with this and then being told you just can't work on it anymore well either frustrating or relief i feel <laughs> but, like oh this, this um, wasn't going too hot <laughs> but i think everybody you know matt and dave were having fun writing it and mm. they wanted to edit it and everybody wanted to do it you know and so everyone had put work into it you know I don't know how we were going to get uh, uh, Earl Weaver and all the other celebrities. You see, I don't know how that was going to happen, but you know, we would have figured it out one way or another. There's a John Waters billboard, "Welcome to Baltimore," where he's riding a crab. <laughs> um, and I really wanted to finish that, but uh, it was—it just it, uh, exists in sketch form. And I'll be posting some of that stuff. Uh, oh, beautiful! Uh, so excited at some point. That's actually all the fan questions I have for you. We had more, but we actually answered them throughout our conversation. <laughs> uh, I want to talk to you. you. You mentioned, of course, being a musician. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Like you play guitar, uh, I take it. Uh, yeah, I play guitar. And, um, you know, we all have uh, on the show, we all have a little bit different tastes and different playing styles. And uh, Dave, Dave's kind of a, uh, uh, describes himself as like a sad dog strummer, you know, like, <laughs> like a, he likes, he likes country and he likes the, um, uh, Bob Dylan and all, and uh, Matt. You know, we all know what Matt can do, right? He's he's a thrasher, man. He's he's playing uh, Eddie Van Halen style licks, right? Whatever. And uh, mine is more of a uh, a, a a blues rock uh, kind of thing. Like I love uh, Gary Clark Jr., current guy, um, uh, my current guitar hero. Uh, I listen to uh, the great jazz guitarists. I'll listen to flamenco guitarists. I mean, I. Uh, sitar, you know, I listened to some old Beatles stuff where George Harrison is learning how to play the sitar <laughs> yeah. and stuff. And I think it's all fascinating, no matter where it comes from in the world, you know, just a, a stringed instrument with fingers moving that skillfully. And it's the old thing, Roddy. It's, it's, it's to me, it, it's the old thing. It's, it's, it's what you leave out as much as what you play that makes something interesting and soulful. And so, but if I'm on an outdoor adventure or something and I've been uh, out hiking for three or four weeks, uh, uh, somewhere when I get on that airplane, the first thing I want to hear is the loudest Texas or Chicago style blues guitar <laughs> and, uh, 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 Freddie King or Stevie Ray Vaughan or mm-hmm. buddy guy or, or, uh, the fabulous Thunderbirds, um, that kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. uh, Hendrix, all, all, all that kind of stuff or Gary Clark Jr. Uh, and there's this new guy, man. What's his name? Tom something from, uh, 
Polythea or Polythea. Oh, uh, Tim Henson, I think his name Tim is. Tim Henson, yeah, 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 my God. Yeah, that guy's a maniac, yeah. Oh, he's like the Einstein of the guitar, man. It's fascinating. <laughs> now, I don't, you know, I, I, I can't play any of it. It's not my thing. I, mm. I'll never learn how to play anything of it. But it's like it's, it's like anything else. Watching a master at anything right. is so much fun, whether it's the guy putting a new water pump in your car right or yeah, yeah. or or a carpenter or a, a plaster guy or whatever it is mm -hmm. and to watch him work is just mesmerizing right 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 uh not not to uh switch topics so abruptly here but i do want to spend some time talking about this on your uh twitter your description I, I see you've changed it since then but at one point it said that you were a fan of non-AI NFTs. So I, I'd like to talk about both of those uh, topics here. Sure. First up, I, I would love to hear, especially right now in the times we live in today, uh, with the explosion of AI, I'm kind of curious to hear your take on that as a, as a veteran of the art industry for so long. Well, as, as you might imagine, uh, traditional artists, me included, are not happy about uh, AI. Of course, it's an amazing, miraculous uh, uh, thing uh, technologically. But um, I saw the Getty Images, I believe it is, is firing a lawsuit against one of the AI mm -hmm. because they use images that were painted by artists or taken by photographers and all that kind of stuff. And you know, our 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 courts and our justice system are always a step behind technology uh, throughout history for their laws and copyright laws for books or w whatever whatever it was. And so. Uh, it might take a couple of steps for them to, uh, uh, a little bit of time for the legality of it to catch up, but it's hard to argue, I believe it's Getty Images, it's hard to argue with the Getty Image position that they're using copyrighted works to sell and make money from. Mm -hmm. And any traditional artist, or, or uh, include, traditional now means digital also, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, no, but no matter, no matter what medium you're working in is if you've, if you've created this art, whether you're a photographer, whether you're a calligrapher, mm -hmm. whether you're pen and ink, acrylic oil, watercolor, uh, w whatever it is, Photoshop, wh whatever it is, this doesn't seem right. Especially of course, that, um, Artists have gone throughout through this throughout history. You know, when the uh, computer came, uh, when stock photography came, uh, a lot of illustrators, the, the the art of illustration, kind of the uh, it signaled the golden end of illustration, which lasted probably up into the seventies or eighties. And if you're an art director, I get it, and you can go on iStock Photo or something, and you can pick out the exact photo you want. You have thousands to choose from, and it's uh, hundred and twenty bucks. Then you don't have to pay me. 1120 bucks mm -hmm. to do a painting of it you know so a lot of illustrators uh went out of business um some incredible some of them uh, uh some of the ones I, I i like went over to the movie business as character designers for animated films and uh they do great work there and 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 they've had great careers but now the uh ai chat uh what is it called gt chat whatever chat gpt yeah and so now writers are, they didn't care the artists were two months ago <laughs> were put out of business. Now the writers are squawking. <laughs> so, so, uh, so I, I say we should put out a book with artificial intelligence writing and artificial intelligence illustration and just put it out and not work at all at it to <laughs> make some money. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing that you touch on. I've, I've, uh, dabbled in, uh, 3d rendering mostly. Um, and I, I've made like tutorials on how to make certain 3D works oh, yeah. that yeah. kind of took off in terms of other people following the tutorial and then 
selling their artwork from the tutorial, which is fine because that's what I kind of put it out there for. But now I realize because my artwork is on Google and like things like Dolly 2 are, are, are using Google to train from. So it's like, well, my artwork that I didn't consent to being used is being used to train yeah. these uh, algorithms that are basically putting me out of out of work in a sense. You know what I mean? It's yeah. just like very strange. Yeah. Like it, and, and there's arguments for this kind of technology, which it, I think it'd be interesting, like, if, if, for example, you yourself took a completely blank slate of this technology, loaded your own artwork into it, and then from there you could, you know, type in what sure. you wanted to do from your, like, that's sure. one thing. But I think a lot of people don't realize that that's not what's happening. It's that it's basically stealing unconsenting artworks to make its own artwork out of, which is, yeah. Uh, yeah, the music industry, you know, went through this when digital sampling, uh, mm. you know, when Pro Tools uh, came about. And people are just ripping off James Brown, James Brown's drummer uh, riff. There's it's like in two thousand songs now, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that that dude never saw a cent, of right? It, you know, right. And uh, so I, I guess uh, the music industry was was first uh, to battle this. Mm -hmm. In literature, there's been a lot of isolated plagiarism incidents, you know, but that's kind of different. Uh, you can easily trace that and root that out, and people do, especially now on the internet. Man, it's it's uh, there, there's a, a the literary police, thousands of them will be after you in seconds, sure, right? Sure. Uh, so this is interesting how it's going to go. You know, this has made strange bedfellows, uh, Getty images buying up hundreds of thousands of photographs when they started that we all could use as references, as illustrators, mm -hmm. um, for instance, like a, a Civil War uniform or whatever, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. Now they bought all those up. And so that rubbed people the wrong way, including me. But now... Now they're kind of on our side as artists. So um, I don't know. This is going to be interesting how it plays out. Uh, the, the backlash on Twitter is just, uh, it's deafening. Right, and, right. And uh, you've, you've gotten about 25 million artists around the world pissed off. I, mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I, who knows what's going to happen, man? Who knows? I know. I'm, I'm excited to see. But my thought went, when I first heard about like the, the image creation tools um, was that if this stuff existed... 20 years ago when they were starting Aqua Teen, then it's possible they, you know, they could have just gone in and typed in, yeah, uh, you know, somewhat cartoon looking chainsaw or whatever to save money. But at the same time, when you do that, they, it would miss out on so many like nuances that you brought to the show, for example. So just interesting to see where it goes. To move on to NFTs, can you tell me how you got into that? Well, like most artists, you know, the history of, of being an illustrator I think Michelangelo was an illustrator, right? He had the Pope tell him what to paint, when to paint it, and he gave him money for it. Mm. That's an illustrator. You can paint. He couldn't paint whatever he wanted. <laughs> you know, he couldn't be Jock Jackson Pollock. <laughs> and so, uh, but he got no residuals for that. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and you know, if you if you're an author, uh, you write a book one time, you get paid for life, right? Mm. Um, but if you're a storyboard artist, you do it once. If you're a background artist for Aquatine, you do it once and you have to keep the hamster wheel turning to make a living. You know, mm -hmm. there are no residuals uh, in Hollywood uh, for television and movies. I know each project's a, a little bit different, but, you know, the director makes money for the rest of his life. The producer makes money for the rest of his life. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David make millions every seven years when Seinfeld mm -hmm. is renewed for syndication. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they continue to get paid for working once. The people that don't, the writers, the directors, the producers, sometimes the assistant directors, sometimes not, 
the above the line credits, I guess, as they as they call it, um, they get paid for life. The artists do not. You know, it's it's a constant grind. And I look at NFTs as a chance for the artists to step up and also play, get a chance to to play in uh, in in the reindeer games. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, you know, it's certainly growing pains right now. But you know, and I'm working on a huge line of them uh, 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 right now. Okay, I'm doing a, uh, a coloring book that I want to pitch around, and if not, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll self-publish it. But it's it's fun to do, and it's it's um, it's a uh, it's about the other side of the Kauai culture of cute, and uh, sometimes life's not so cute. So misfortunate <laughs> misfortune can happen uh, to these cute uh, characters. Also, everyday everyday misfortune, <laughs> and. Uh, so, so you, is it like little bunnies and stuff like that? Like that's that's all. Why I, all the uh, hello, it's called yeah. Hello Fu, Hello Fugu, <laughs> uh, the real life Kawaii coloring okay. book, and the cover is a bunch of uh, of these cute little characters lying dead after eating puffer fish at a restaurant, <laughs> being poisoned, <laughs> not prepared properly. Sure, <laughs> right, right. It happens, it happens, man. <laughs> uh, so I got like, uh, so anyway, I'm having fun with that and I'll, mm. I'll be submitting that in the next month or two and, uh, and, uh, I'll finish up my NFT line in the next month or two. I'm working for, with a company in, in Portland, a great company that does all the tech work for it. So I don't know how this will play out, but this is a chance. Uh, there are a lot of scammers and hustlers and flippers in the space, right, right. just like they are in any mm -hmm. financial derivative, mm -hmm. you know, even though they're not technically legally yet classified as such, but the feds are looking at. Uh, classifying them in, in some way. And so we're just kind of waiting how it, uh, see how it turns out. It, it's going to be an interesting ride. So there are, are, there are a lot of bad stories out there, you know, mm -hmm. what they call rug pulls where people take the money and run, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of very bad uh, 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 NFT art out there. There are a lot of people trying to get rich quick. Right. And unfortunately right. the public has yet to discern, you know, in the old model of the artist, the gallery owner, would be your PR person. He'd essentially be your agent. He'd educate the public, especially if you were on the cutting edge of a new, if you were an impressionist, starving, eating even red wine and, and a piece of bread every day and sleeping on the park bench. The gallery owner uh, in Paris would educate the public through hundreds of pitches of people that would walk in, right? And that's why they got their 40 to 50%. Mm -hmm. um, no one's here to do this, to educate the public. So a lot of people, it's just a, uh, it's a roll of the dice, like gambling on football games, right. you know, at, at, a, at a sports book. Mm -hmm. And they're there to flip and they're there to make money. And they're not happy when they don't make money. Mm -hmm. But um, we don't have someone here yet. There are a couple of galleries that specialize in this stuff, but we don't have someone here yet that, that people trust to educate the people that want to invest in real art, mm -hmm. you know, what is good, why it's good. You know, I, I always say the, the, the role of the artist, whether it's musician, writer, um, artist, is to take your life experience, live it as much as you can, and then distill it so that it affects people here, the heart, the brain, or both. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you, you distill your experiences so it becomes universal and people can, um, uh, people can relate to it. Some of this NFT art is just somebody scribbling, uh, you know, a, a, a woodchuck. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> no, a squirrel uh, in two seconds and trying to make money, right? And in until until all that's gone, uh, there's going to be some bad feelings about it. People are going to I've I got a you know I got a, a highly critical uh, a DM 
from somebody that saw that hashtag NFT in my mm-hmm. profile. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, I, I, you know, I should be ashamed of myself, that kind of thing. But the big picture is that this gives a chance. This gives a chance for artists to finally play the game, play in the game, too. But traditionally, the only way for an artist to continue to make money is to do a uh, a picture book, you know, like a kid's book. Right, right. right. And then you're the author, essentially, and you can continue to get paid mm-hmm. um, uh, for the rest of your life, uh, you know, Dr. Seuss, whatever. Right, right. <laughs> but, uh, well, I mean, to cut in, you you and Dave worked on a uh, a children's book as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, a Monster Christmas, Dave's idea. And um, I did a, a, some great color sketches uh for it mm-hmm. the premise is great it's uh it was kind of later ripped off uh the same premise for uh adam sandler's animated movies um but we were there first man and uh uh so during christmas halloween's over right the mm-hmm. the the monsters and the spooky things have had their time they're heroes they're great once christmas was around nobody wants to hang out with them so they all go to the south pole to hang out by themselves and lick their <laughs> wounds and uh it's such a great premise but christmas was rolling around we we're all working on aqua teen and, and you know nobody has any extra time so uh we just decided to hire uh, a guy named ben bowling who's a great local cartoonist and just and he works so quickly so we made it more cartoony rather than kind of uh, a beautiful oil painting mm-hmm. kind of uh stuff and I went to a couple of classes on how to publish an ebook <laughs> and laid it all out and did all the pages and uh, put it in uh, digital format and uploaded it, right? Whatever. And I think in the first week, Dave knew somebody at Apple. So it got on their front page, you know, for oh, wow. an ebook. Nice. Um, and, uh, but it, it hasn't made any money. And I heard Dave talk of that, 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 uh, uh, it's hard to get at if you're not on the uh, Apple. Right. Um, yeah, I, I, I was talking to him about that because I bought it on Amazon, but it didn't work when I bought it for whatever reason. So I guess it only works if you buy it from Apple. But if you don't have an Apple device like I don't, I can't read it. Oh, so does Dave owe you seven dollars ninety five cents? I like, refunded it. I, don't worry, I refund, Apple took or uh, Amazon took care of it. But okay. Um, before I let you go here, I have just four kind of rapid fire questions just about yourself. So I'm wondering what your favorite band and or album is. Well, even though I'm a guitar guy, uh, I love R.E.M. And uh, when I was a kid, I, I just wore out all the Jethro Tull albums. What about your favorite film and or TV show? Well, I think my top five TV is pretty much the same of, of, of any anyone else. It's, you know, it's the Sopranos and The Wire and Breaking Bad mm-hmm. and Game of Thrones and whatever else you want to put in there. With the people I know that work in the industry, we, we have these endless beer-fueled discussions on why each show is, is better than the other. But my all-time favorite show is Breaking Bad. Yeah, my, mine as well. Really? Yeah, yeah. Breaking Bad and Aqua Teen. <laughs> <laughs> That's very sweet. Uh, oh, that's right. Aqua Teen appeared on a Breaking Bad uh, yeah, episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, hey, I see you're um, 
uh, one night I went down the rabbit hole as I want to do on YouTube and stay up till five in the morning and watch go down a video rabbit hole. And one night I see your Smashing Pumpkins uh, hoodie. <laughs> yeah. One night I watched every single Billy Corgan interview available oh, on you YouTube. Go. That's, a, that's a good time. It took me like seven <laughs> hours. <laughs> He's an interesting character. I, I'm I'm from the Chicago area, so I'm kind of like oh yeah tied to that band a little bit. But uh, you know, yeah. uh, for good and bad, they're my favorite uh, band. <laughs> Yeah, he's an interest. No boring interviews. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, no, he's a character. He's a character. And then movie. Um, you know, I like I like smaller movies. Uh, I, I saw Emily the Criminal, uh, with Aubrey Plaza the other day. It's great. Uh, the less special effects, the better for me. It it seems I'm leaning that way. Mm-hmm. I saw this crazy Canadian independent thing with Justin Long called Tusk. Oh, that's with Kevin Smith, right? Uh, I th- I think he directed it. Yeah. Yeah, and and uh, I'm not, I I I I'm not sure of his involvement. It was a uh, uh, Johnny Depp does a cameo as a mm. as a detective, a French detective, right? Whatever. Um, this is the weirdest, oddest thing. Um, uncut gem at Adam Sandler, um, uh, the assistant with Julia Garner. Uh, she is just amazing. It's a small little thing that kind of uh, it's about sexual harassment in Hollywood. It just takes place in like two or three rooms. It's like a play. It's it just I I can watch her work in anything. She's so great. <laughs> but uh, but I think all time favorite is Godfather One. Okay, uh, yeah, that's, Jer- that's a good choice. Jeremiah Johnson, also biggest guilty pleasure. The panoramic scenes, you know, like any Stanley Kubrick movie is just is so so beautiful, so rewarding. But uh, what's your favorite movie? Uh, my favorite movie is The Room, which is a very bad film. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen it, but it's horrible. <laughs> yeah, I, I went to the one of the I went to that guy's presentation. He came through Atlanta. Okay, a few yeah, years yeah, ago. yeah. He does like theater tours where they show it. Yeah, and, yeah. So I went to one. Uh, uh, the rest of the guys went to the other one la- uh, uh, late last year. I think he came through then. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I've been I've been traveling. I haven't been in Atlanta much, so I didn't see that one. But aren't they making a remake of that? No, that, that 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 already happened. They they remade basically they remade the making of the film because what happened was uh almost 10 years ago one of the main actors wrote a book about it about working on that film and knowing Tommy Wiseau the the creator behind it. So uh the Francos then went and made a movie based on the book <laughs> that was based on making that crazy movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just love it so much. It's so so bad but i don't know why i'm just so into it <laughs> yeah occasionally i'll do the you know the campy uh campy thing <laughs> yeah yeah um your favorite book or one of your favorite books I, c- I can narrow it down to writers it's uh you know it's hemingway and steinbeck and tortilla flat by uh steinbeck is is fascinating insight into human psychology and for more recent authors uh, donna tart uh and michael chabon have such a craftsmanship with words that I, I really enjoy reading them. Uh, craftsmanship is everything, I guess, mm-hmm. is the common denominator in all the things we've just talked about. You know, well, sure, sure. But I, I guess, I guess, more so in in writing because you, th- there's not a whole lot you can do to fake uh, writing being <laughs> right. good. You know what I mean? You can't rely yeah. on dazzling effects or yeah. anything like that. I wonder if AI could put out a best-selling novel. I'm sure. I, I don't know. <laughs> it's so. It's so difficult to even imagine what that future looks like once it comes down to that being a possibility. And then last but not least, since you, you've you worked on this uh, silly uh, show with, with talking fast food products, I'm curious what one of your favorite fast food restaurants is. <laughs> I don't do, I'm kind of health oriented. I try to be. 
and I've been reading labels since I've been in college, but uh, food labels. But um, a thing that never gets old is morning McDonald's egg McMuffin coffee yeah. three creams. <laughs> never gets old, man. Never gets old. And I think McDonald's coffee is the most underrated coffee on the world. And the Wall, Wall Street Journal did a story about it a couple of years ago. They explained why McDonald's profits for their coffee, they make more profits from their coffee drinks. 20 something, 22% of their total profits are from their coffee drinks. Wow. So they looked at, all right, we can get a $4.50 Starbucks coffee, or we can get a $1 convenience store gas station coffee. Everything in the middle is wide open. So that's where they went. The two twenty-five for the frozen thing with the whipped cream, right? Whatever. Mm-hmm. 22 or whatever it is, people can look it up. 22% of their profits. And so they realized um, that, that they were going to go all in. And so they uh, shopped around the world. They have uh, coffee blenders and tasters and roasters, and they do all Arabica beans from all different, you know, they make their blends like uh, a vineyard wood in California, blending their red wines, you know, right. that kind of thing. Right. Uh, they take it really seriously. And I, I don't know. I seem to be the only one that likes McDonald's coffee. I mean, Duncan's okay too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it makes sense because now that you mention it, like I know so many people, including my dad, who who live off the coffee, but don't maybe don't even buy anything else from McDonald's. They just go there for the coffee. Yeah. Oh yeah, and that's it. Yeah, like that's what my dad does, and he'll he'll get like three cups a day or something. Really? But, yeah, but not buy any of the food. So yeah, now that you mention it, it makes a lot of sense for that kind of a mid tier coffee. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they hit it. They had that. They had that. They they just they they had a two dollar leeway, which is amazing for a small uh small ticket item. So a little when I when I first moved in this little uh, Atlanta neighborhood, East Atlanta, it was kind of funky. It was gentrifying, and there's a McDonald's about two blocks away, and uh, I was staying up, you know, all night, which was not unusual, uh, uh, 2013 or 14, whatever. And so I would just to get up and get some air and get off the computer. I would walk to McDonald's to her block. It was open 24 hours a day. And at the time it was the largest grossing McDonald's in the state of Georgia, but it's kind of a sketchy neighborhood. So they're all kind of characters hanging out there. Mm-hmm. And I remember, uh, walking to the drive through one and one time only. And as I got my, got my egg McMuffin cup of coffee, whatever it was. And I was walking, uh, 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 the walk into the end of the driveway, you know, the edge of the store, mm-hmm. a prostitute comes out and asks me if I wanted to party. <laughs> so this, this is like four 30 in the morning. So from then on, I drove, uh, I drove, I, I drove the two blocks <laughs> and did some pushups when I got home to get the, air, you know, get the blood going, whatever, instead of walking. Bob Pettit, what a guy, what a legend, just such an honor to talk to him. I hope you enjoyed that. I I tried to take a different approach to this interview because I realized in the past I was more or less just aggressively interrogating the the previous guests because I'd come in with like 10 million questions ready to go. Here I tried to be a little bit more conversational, tried to really just dig more into Bob's story than just, you know, keep hitting him with with these rapid fire questions. So, a part of that was, you know, my conscious decision, but also like I hinted at in the interview, because Bob works visually, I couldn't really rely on specific questions because it just wouldn't really translate you know, to an audio format. So again, hope you enjoyed that. I still have a lot to learn about interviewing people, but I like the way that this one turned out. Of course, Bob and I got into NFTs a little bit there. I realize that is probably a hot button issue for some people. To clarify my stance, 
Uh, I don't participate in, in NFTs or crypto or anything. It's not my thing. But I really wanted to hear what Bob had to say about it. And I think he had a lot of really great points. And I want to clarify, even though I don't participate in NFTs and I'm not interested in them, I do wholeheartedly support legitimate artists trying to make money off of people who realize what they're getting into if you want to buy an NFT to support the artists or what have you, rather than it just basically being a gambling racket, which, uh, again, hopefully you can discern from from our interview. That's not what this is. It, Bob wasn't here like, yeah, man, pump up this. You're going to make a lot of money off of this. Uh, anything like that. That's not what this is. So please, for the love of God, don't reach out to Bob to complain at him about NFTs. There are many more people who deserve your complaints, like the actual grifters and everything in that space. This technology is so new, we don't know where it's going to go yet, and I would just love to see some you know, legitimate use for it that helps artists. I, I mean, I think that's great, and hopefully it can continue to go in that direction. And I know there's like the environmental concern, but I don't know enough about that to really speak to it, although I do hear that there's like steps being taken to make it way more environmentally friendly. But still, I mean, it's not cool to reach out to an, a legitimate artist here and complain. He's not trying to scam people. And look, if you don't like NFTs like me, then just don't buy them like I don't. Simple as that. So if you do like NFTs, definitely keep an eye out for Bob's upcoming collection. I, I suspect we will hear more about that uh, once it comes out. And hey, since we're talking about Bob's work, I did go and track down that painting he was talking about, that that wrestling VHS tape painting. So check the link in the show notes if you want to see what we were talking about there. I found it. I sent it to Bob. He was very happy to see it, and he forwarded it to the art director he was working under at the time. She got a kick out of it as well. Again, go follow Bob on Twitter. I promise you he will be happy to answer any Aqua Teen-related questions that you will have for him. And of course, I want to thank all the people who support this show over at patreon.com slash dancing is forbidden. The moon masters over there who are kicking ass and taking names. If it wasn't for you guys, this wouldn't have happened. And I want to shout out our number one in the hood G tier patrons. I know I normally get our guests to do this. I'm sure Bob would have been happy to do it, but I felt so bad taking up way too much of his time. So in the words of Johnny from my favorite film, The Room, please forgive me. <laughs> All right, thank you to Sean, Ian, Captain Buford, Brian, Robison, and Jason. You guys can approach me at the McDonald's at four in the morning any day of the week. I'll see you all next week when we're doing something with Aqua Teen Hunger Force. Keep it cool. Take it easy. Bye-bye. Um, all right, Bob. Well, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Before I let you go, I got to know, did you end up selling that house that you fixed up? Uh, I did for uh, uh, well over asking. All right. And uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, the building inspector uh, told the uh, the woman that bought it was a real estate agent, told her at closing that whoever renovated this house did a great job. So that was that, that was worth oh, it. Oh, that's nice. Did, did, did they mention that you also worked on Aqua Teen? No, I, I thought about putting that, and then I thought, man, that may hurt the value. <laughs> this room here, six seasons of Aqua Teen and four of your pretty face. All right? It was all created right here. Uh, we had like 150 people in three days come by. And, oh, uh, wow. Open house and uh, 17 offers, I think. It was insane.
Wow, that sounds like a whirlwind. Jeez. Uh, it was very interesting, and then I then I just took off and and, and traveled. There you go. Uh, but uh, anyway, Ronnie, it's been great. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, you do a great job. Uh, every, everybody associated with the show uh, uh, really likes the job. Oh, thank you. That means there. a lot. And uh, and you you'll have everybody on by. <laughs> you know, everybody will. Everybody will line up. Hey man, Ronnie, put me on the show, buddy. <laughs>